Welcome to Above Avalon. This is episode 107, Back from Apple Park. Hi, I'm Neil. These past two weeks have been extremely busy, which is never a bad thing. We have plenty to talk about. Apple held its first event at Steve Jobs Theater. We have iPhone 8, 8 Plus, iPhone 10, Apple Watch Series 3, and Apple TV 4K. Now, each one of those could probably be a handful of episodes. But what we're going to do today is focus on a topic that I think was very relevant for this most recent product event, but which I think a lot of people are ignoring. And that is Steve Jobs Theater. Most people would agree that this new building was very well designed. It was intriguing. Looks great. That's usually the extent of the discussion. After attending Apple's event last week, And getting to experience Steve Jobs' theater firsthand, I think there's a lot there to talk about. And I think Apple's motivation behind the building is pretty clear. Steve Jobs' theater is an Apple product. And a closer look at the building uncovers a side to Apple that I don't think a lot of people have seen before. And that's going to be today's episode. We're going to go over my impressions of attending the event at Steve Jobs Theater and then go over a couple of things that really stand out to me from experiencing Steve Jobs Theater in the broader Apple Park campus. For those of you who may not be familiar with Steve Jobs Theater, this building is located in Cupertino. It's in the southeast corner of Apple's new $5 billion Apple Park headquarters. The structure itself is about 167,000 square feet, so it's very large. There's an underground theater, 921 seats, and then there is an underground product demo room. So really the only part of the structure that's above ground is the lobby. The plan is for Steve Jobs Theater to hold most of Apple's product events going forward. In addition, Apple could hold a couple other corporate events throughout the year. The main architect was Norman Foster and his firm Foster and Partners, although Johnny Ive, Apple's chief design officer, and other Apple designers played a very significant role both in Steve Jobs' theater and the broader Apple Park campus. My first impression of Steve Jobs' theater is probably going to be very similar to other people's first impressions, and that is one of seclusion and allure. I know that a portion of you either live or work in Cupertino and the surrounding areas, but for this discussion, I'm going to assume none of you do. And if I had to describe the area to someone who's never been there, the best word probably would be monotone. There's a lot of roads, a lot of parking lots, a lot of cars. I could see why so many companies are investing in self-driving cars. But you pretty much have just a lot of office buildings, office parks, sort of mingled in with restaurants, other small buildings with different services, and then you have your residential areas kind of plopped in all different parts. Meanwhile, Apple Park, it feels different. It feels like a completely different environment. You don't quite get that connection to the community, and I think some people were actually upset about that, where they hoped Apple Park would be a little bit more intertwined with its surroundings. Instead, what Apple really wanted to do was bring back memories of what it used to be. So you have flowing meadows, a ton of landscaping, plenty of trees, tall grasses, 
And all of this comes together and plays a part in how you first interpret Steve Jobs Theater. And driving to Apple Park, there's an underground visitor's parking lot, and you walk up, and there's a new Apple store that will be open to the public shortly. But you have to walk along a path to get the Steve Jobs Theater. You actually can't view, you can't see the theater from the public road, which is a little bit interesting. I didn't necessarily expect that. Meanwhile, the huge ring building, the 2.8 million square foot ring building, that's the main building on Apple Park, that of course can be viewed from the nearby streets. So you have to walk along this path to actually see Steve Jobs Theater. And it becomes clear that this short walk, it's part of the experience Apple is trying to achieve. This most recent product unveiling marks the sixth Apple event that I've been to. And I say that because I've seen a theme among all of these events, and that is that they are very well run. They're very well orchestrated. And you don't really notice it. The only time you notice is actually when you go to an event that's not well run and it turns out to be a mess. But at Apple events, everything seems to be almost pre-planned for you. There is one exception to that, which we'll get to in a few minutes. But as you're walking along this path, you have someone from Apple pretty much, I would say every 20 feet, kind of guiding you along, saying, okay, you know, this way, have any questions? Everyone sort of has a smile on their face. And again, this is all part of that broader experience found with a product unveiling. Now, this path eventually empties out into a basin, and you see Steve Jobs Theater, and you see the lobby. So again, that's the only part that's above ground. And the lobby consists of 22-foot curved panes of glass. I don't think any video or photos do it justice because it's just such a massive structure. And to the right, you have an unobstructed view of the circular ring building. The very first thing that came to mind was that it felt like Disney World. It was as if someone created a specific experience to be consumed at a very particular location. The lobby, which is pretty much all glass, is... I would say massive, intriguing, and even magical. I think that's the right word. Because what happens is the more you look at it, you begin to ask questions and you notice, wait a second, there's no walls and there, it's not clear what is actually supporting this huge roof, which ends up being 155 feet. And so you ask yourself, what's going on here? It actually turns out that the glass is supporting the roof, and it's a carbon fiber roof. So it's not as heavy as it looks. But if you look a little bit closer, you see, okay, you have lights, you have speakers. How does Apple wire the electricity to those items? How does Apple plumb the water to the water sprinklers? Because there's no walls. And as it turns out, all of that plumbing and wiring it's found in the very narrow gaps between these large panes of glass. Apparently, it's not every gap because you could actually go and feel them and it doesn't seem like there's anything in between. And this is when it occurred to me that there's not too many buildings out there that can be called magical, that actually cause you to ask questions as to how is that being done? Steve Jobs Theater was an exception. 
The other thing that really stood out to me was if you're on the outside of Steve Jobs Theater, the lobby, and you're looking down, you're looking through the glass, you can see down towards the theater. And you see these huge, there's two sets of stairs. They're just massive. And this is how visitors, they walk down to the theater. They use these stairs. There's also an elevator, which is intriguing in its own right. But the thing that really stood out to me was just the mix of stone with scale. It was, you could just kind of look at it for a couple minutes just to take it all in. The handrails are hand-carved into the stone walls. If you've been to some of Apple's most recent new store remodels, you actually see this very same thing. Apparently, they use the same stone material. So this is another theme that we're going to talk about is that a lot of Steve Jobs Theater borrows design themes that are found in Apple retail. But really, the whole thing kind of reminded me of a mix between an Egyptian structure and something from space. It was quite fun to experience. Before we go any further, I did want to point out Steve Jobs Theater is far from perfect. I think a very strong argument can be made that Apple has already outgrown the theater. Because if you go back to the past few iPhone events, those took place in a venue that fit 50% more people. And what Apple was able to do was invite more Apple employees. And that kind of adds a very different type of feel to the room. And I think it's great that Apple could invite more Apple employees. At Steve Jobs Theater, it's pretty tight. The person next to me, I was hearing him talk, apparently there was an overflow room. Not everyone could fit into the actual theater. So it makes you think, well, if you're going out 5, 10, 15 years, and Apple continues to grow, well, that theater's going to probably start to feel pretty small. The other thing that was a problem, and this kind of goes back to what we were saying about Apple events being well run and very well orchestrated, the exhibit space was a problem. It felt incredibly cramped. I assume Apple likes the visual of having hundreds of people bumping into each other to get their hands on these new products, and maybe they think it kind of contributes to the overall experience. But what it ends up doing is producing a little bit more frustration than anything else. The odd thing was there was no crowd control. So once the presentation was over, the entire press pool just sort of ran into the exhibit space. If you go back to previous iPhone events, there was some level of crowd control where only a certain number of people can actually go into the exhibit space and then you had to wait until someone left to let more people in. And so what this did was it just made it extremely crowded and packed. And what was also weird was it seemed like they didn't have a lot of iPhone 10 units to try. They had the same number of iPhone 8 and 8 Plus as iPhone 10. And you can see how that could be a problem because everyone wanted to try the iPhone 10. I think it took me almost probably 45 minutes to an hour just to touch an iPhone 10. And even when that happened, I had people sort of reaching over my shoulders, yelling, telling me to do this or that. It wasn't the most pleasant experience. I think one issue here is that the Apple exhibit space, I don't think it reflects how media is changing. 
Because when you're in this space and you're going around, you look at what people are doing and everyone's on their iPhone and they're live streaming. So they're playing with the iPhone 10 in one hand and they're live streaming with their iPhone in the other hand. And they're doing this for 5, 10, maybe even 15 minutes. The person in front of me was trying to do, he was trying to film a, a segment without stopping. And he would get five minutes into it, mess up, and then he would start over again. And it seems like the people who were from Apple, who were sort of handling the products, it seemed like they were just told, well, don't rush anyone, just sort of do what they want to do. It was just strange. I, and I, don't, I, I think some modification needs to happen going forward to sort of make this work a little bit better or be a little bit more smooth. There were a number of other design decisions that were a little bit perplexing. These seem really minor, but they jumped out at me. The paper towel dispenser in the restroom was one of the most awkward things I've seen. You have the doors that were pretty difficult to open. I couldn't almost open the lobby door for some reason. Someone had to open it for me. And then in the morning before the event started, if you're walking under the roof, for some reason there was a lot of water that was dripping, um, landing on your head. Again, these are pretty minor points. And I think if anything, they just go to show that overall the building's accomplishments were significant and they were very noteworthy. This is a building that I think for a lot of people stood out. And that really gave this event a different tone than the other Apple events that I've been to. Pretty much everyone that I stopped to chat with, the discussion quickly turned to the building. You would see all the Apple executives there, uh, Johnny Ive walking around, and you could tell he was a little bit more interested in the building than the actual products. And I don't know if you're ever going to really recreate that feel in future Apple events. I know that there's always going to be a portion of the crowd that's they're going to be there for the first time, and they're going to sort of be amazed by Steve Jobs see there. But I don't think you're ever going to have, again, the entire crowd kind of just take it all in because they knew that this was a pretty unique event. So, so far, this discussion regarding Steve Jobs see there has been pretty superficial. And I think the conclusion is most people would agree that the building is impressive. It fits within Apple's broader design focus. But if you take a closer look at Steve Jobs Theater, I think it provides a fascinating look at today's Apple. There were a number of items that stood out to me. Steve Jobs Theater and the broader Apple Park headquarters that it's positioned in is an Apple product. Apple is no longer a company that is just shipping consumer hardware powered by differentiated software. I think when you look at Steve Jobs Theater, it's a latest sign of this new reality. Apple approached Steve Jobs Theater and Apple Park in the same way that it would any other product. You had Apple spending a lot of time and resources on modeling and prototyping before actually building the structure, before actually buying all of the material. This is the exact process that's used for all the other products that Apple designs. The ones that end up on our desk, in our pockets, on our wrist. And so I think one of the most significant takeaways from Steve Jobs Theater is Apple 
is no longer a company just making well-designed electronics. I think Apple is moving into bigger and bolder initiatives. I don't think this is just about Apple building a headquarters or building a place to unveil products. There's a lot more here. When you go back through all of the recent Johnny Ive interviews, there is a major theme that comes out, and that is that he has a never-ending drive to make technology more personal and to create tools for people. You can say that those two goals are also the goals of Apple, all the way from when the company was started. Now, I think that this goal is going to lead Apple further into wearables, including Apple Glasses. Shout out to episode 103. Apple Glasses are inevitable if you want more details on that. But I think there is a high likelihood that Apple is going to focus on bigger tools for us, such as self-driving cars. And these bigger tools, they're going to require Apple to move much further into construction and architecture. Apple reportedly owns and leases a collection of heavy manufacturing facilities very close to Apple Park, maybe 10, 15 minutes away or so. Apple also reportedly owns and leases some of the last remaining open space in the San Jose vicinity. If you go just east of the San Jose International Airport, that's actually Apple's land. I was out there last week to see if there was any major change from the past few months uh, which there wasn't. I actually created a map of all of these manufacturing facilities. I, it's available to above Avalon members, so if you want access to that, I'll talk a little bit more about it at the end of the episode. But I think the day when Apple designers build their own state-of-the-art transportation R&D center just minutes away from Apple Park, that's no longer a fantasy. This discussion puts all of those PR photos of Tim Cook and Johnny wearing Apple-branded hard hats at Apple Park Construction over the past year. It, it puts those photos into a new light. If we take a step back, I think we are at a very weird point in time. If you look at Silicon Valley giants, they are gaining so much power, yet they remain so detached when it comes to things like manufacturing and construction. Meanwhile, Apple is the notable exception. I think Apple is the company most eager to step outside its comfort zone. Apple is experimenting in construction and architecture. This is why I don't just see Apple Park as a building that Norman Foster designed. I don't think that's the right way of thinking about this. Instead, I think Apple is looking at the gap between architecture and design, it's starting to break apart. It's starting to shrink. And I think that's going to have major implications on where Apple is headed in the future. The second item that stood out to me about Steve Jobs Theater was the experience. Steve Jobs Theater symbolizes how Apple is doubling down on extending the Apple experience beyond just iPhones in our pockets and Apple Watches on our wrist. Just look at Apple's retail store strategy. Apple is using architecture and physical space to explain the Apple story. They've been doing this for years. However, Apple is taking the idea much further when you look at its headquarters and you look at this theater. As I mentioned a few minutes ago, 
Steve Jobs Theater in Apple Park reminded me most of Disney World. And the reason is both locations provide an unmatched experience to the visitor. Anyone who's been to Disney World in Florida, you know, I think that becomes pretty clear. And so when you're walking around Steve Jobs Theater and you're taking a look at the main ring building, it really felt like Steve Jobs Theater was the earth and the large circular ring building off in the distance was the sun. And when you start to think of how that experience was made using space, distance, landscaping, materials, it, it really starts to get at how significant Apple focused on the experience to Apple Park. And we haven't even talked about the experience that's going to be felt by Apple employees. And that really is almost an entire different discussion where Apple is trying to increase the amount of collaboration. Now, yes, there are some questions as to whether this will work in terms of the amount of open workspace. There are a number of people who are not too thrilled with the idea. But I think the broader point is that Apple Park represents something that Apple has always sort of wanted but can never get when you're looking at its old headquarters. This is the ideal that Apple thinks is right for the company going forward, even if it may make some people uncomfortable in the near term. The third element that really jumped out at me had to do with the theme of being focused. It's very easy to look at Steve Jobs Theater and forget all of the work and resources that went into this building. This is not something that just really went into high gear the past year or two. This is something that Apple has been spending pretty much the past decade on. Now, Johnny and Apple's industrial design team reportedly worked alongside Foster and Partners on nearly every aspect of the theater in the broader Apple Park campus. Knowing that, we then turn to how Apple management likes to use every opportunity that it can to reiterate its goal of remaining very focused. This is a company that likes saying we say no a lot, in order to say yes to the really, really great things. So you say no to the good things in order to focus on the really great things. I think the company's product line demonstrates that. It occurred to me just a couple days ago, Apple pretty much updated its entire product line over the past six months. For a company of Apple's size, that is remarkable. I don't think too many companies can say that, even smaller companies. I don't think they can say that they updated everything in just such a short amount of time. And so I think that there is logic here in considering how much attention went into Apple Park over the past few years and wondering where is that attention now being placed, considering that Apple Park construction is winding down. And this brings us to probably the most crucial takeaway regarding Steve Jobs either. It has to do with Johnny Ive. In May 2015, Johnny was promoted to chief design officer. Apple very clearly positioned this as a promotion. However, to the outside world, the transition kicked off a very vicious debate regarding the motivation behind the move. Many people argued that the promotion marked the beginning of the end for Johnny's time at Apple. To this group, the chief design officer title set the stage for Johnny eventually retiring. 
And so what he's doing now is he's shifting day-to-day responsibilities to Richard Hallworth and Alan Dye, and then eventually he will start to wind down his public appearances, he'll have less impact on products, and then before long, he's sort of out of the picture. So a lot of people looked at this as it was some sort of long-term orderly transition of power succession. And what ended up happening was Johnny did take a less visible presence in the subsequent months. There were some events where he didn't show up. There were reports that um, he's not showing up every day. The thing was that was clearly telegraphed by Apple in announcing his promotion, in which they said that this is going to give him time to do other things, including travel, including checking out Apple retail stores. That kind of didn't really register with everyone, I guess. From the day Johnny's promotion was announced in 2015, I've held a completely different view of the situation. I looked at Johnny's new role as being much more about leadership and not necessarily management. So Richard Hallworth and Alan Dye, they would focus on the corporate side of things, sort of making sure that the machine was running every day, that the lights were on, That's not easy to do for one person, especially if you're doing both industrial design and human interface, which was Johnny's responsibility. So I looked at his promotion as giving him greater potential. He can focus on things that he couldn't focus on before. He could check out of that day-to-day executive grind and lose himself in research and design elements. In a way, I said that Johnny could be more like Johnny. Well, two years later, and with Steve Jobs' theater officially open, I think that view has materialized. It's clear that Johnny holds the role closest to the one held by Steve Jobs. The reason my view sometimes gets pushback is that people hear that phrase, Johnny holds the role closest to the one held by Steve Jobs, And they say, wait a second, Johnny really isn't doing exactly what Steve Jobs did. And my view is, I think that line of thinking is very problematic. Because it implies that the only way forward is to simply repeat the past. That doesn't allow Apple to change. It doesn't allow Apple to adapt. You look at Disney. It's very much like, well, the only way Disney can go forward is if it tries to bottle up exactly what made it special during the Walt Disney era. And I don't think that's right for Apple. We could probably have a whole episode dedicated to the role Steve Jobs played at Apple. But I think it was to look after the user. It was to look after the experience. And that's exactly what Johnny Ive is doing. It may not be using the same method as Steve Jobs, but I don't think Apple would want that because the company wouldn't be true to themselves. When you look at Johnny's promotion to chief design officer, I think it represented sustainability for Johnny. It has been reported that Apple Watch development, in addition to overtaking leadership of human interface following Scott Forstall's departure, it took its toll on Johnny. And so when you look at Apple Park, Steve Jobs Theater. That big project represented much of Johnny's focus in recent years. 
While the big things were settled probably years ago, we have floor plans from 2013 that pretty much look exactly like what it does today. I still think there was quite a bit to work on more recently. Johnny was the one who carried Apple Park on his shoulders. I don't think that would have been possible if he was focused on what he was just a couple years ago. So if Apple Park completion now upon us, I think that gives Johnny the freedom to focus on new initiatives and different projects at Apple. And we're going to see the conclusion of that. We're going to see the repercussions of that in the coming years. So it may seem strange to say, but that's what I'm thinking about when you look at Steve Jobs Theater and you look at the broader Apple Park headquarters. At the beginning of Apple's presentation last week, they played an audio clip of Steve Jobs. Apparently, this was the first time that it was made public. And one sentence stood out to me. One of the ways that I believe people express their appreciation to the rest of humanity is to make something wonderful and put it out there. When you stop to think about Steve Jobs' theater, on paper, I don't think it actually makes complete sense. I have a very difficult time envisioning any other company building something like Steve Jobs' theater. It's been reported that Apple spent $14 million on just the seating. That would make me estimate that the overall cost of the building probably exceeds $100 million. At that price, most management teams are going to struggle to find how such an initiative would ever come back to benefit the company. How would that boost sales going forward? Well, Apple is unlike any other Silicon Valley firm. Steve Jobs Theater symbolizes how Apple isn't a tech company. Instead, Apple is a design company. Apple believes that how we experience and interact with a product is more important than just focusing on the technology powering that product. It may be weird to say, but I think Apple's now bringing that philosophy to the way we experience architecture. As for the why behind it all, why bother? Why build something like Steve Jobs Theater? Apple's answer would probably be to make something wonderful. That's going to do it for today's episode. Last week, I published my full review, all of my notes from Apple's product event at Steve Jobs Theater. There were two parts. The first were the major themes. So I talked a little bit about Apple TV, iPhone 10, Apple Watch, what's going on with Apple product pricing, and my observations from attending the event. The second part contained more of my granular notes. So I covered 34 different topics. Those were really the things that jumped out at me. So when you combine the major themes with these 34 different topics, I think that represents a pretty good review of everything that Apple announced. And I published that to above Avalon members. There were two daily emails. So if you are a member, you can check for that in your inbox. If you are not an above Avalon member and you would like to get my review from the Apple event, you can become a member. You can head on over to aboveavalon.com and then go to the membership page. 
Sign up is very easy. It's either $10 per month or $100 per year. And the cornerstone of membership is access to my exclusive daily email all about Apple. So this email is about 2,000 words, and it contains two to three stories. My goal with these emails is to cover everything that's important that's going on in the world of Apple. This can include strategy and business analysis. We can go over financial modeling and my estimates. We talk about perspective and observations from current news events, what competitors are doing, earnings, and of course, keynotes and product events. If you want to see the headlines for all of these daily emails, you can head on over to the daily emails tab. There is also an archive available so you can go back and read previous daily emails. And as I mentioned earlier this episode, one of those previous daily emails contains a map and a listing of all of those heavy manufacturing facilities that Apple either owns or leases around Apple Park. So that is available. Above Avalon is 100% supported by its members. So if you like the type of Apple analysis found in these podcast episodes and in the weekly articles available at AboveAvalon.com, I think you would like becoming an Above Avalon member and getting access to my exclusive daily emails. With that, I will conclude today's episode. We will talk to each other next week. Bye.